Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Think you can swim with the sharks? Talk with Mr. Great White himself, Roy Green. The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Pain and chronic pain and severe chronic pain. The uh, invisible, unwelcome companion for far too many people, and particularly with an aging population, I think that's going to become more and more of a reality. And for decades now, doctors have prescribed opioid pain meds, and they have kept and helped some people, as I've read, read an article just uh, the other day. They've maintained sanity, was the position taken by one patient Another one said that uh, living without the opioids would expose him to torture. And one of the patients who was interviewed in that article I read was a doctor, not self-prescribing, but it was a doctor who uh, had said that he understands so much of the, the argument against opioids, but he continues to use them on a daily basis as prescribed by his physician because they provide him with the pain relief that he requires. And he said this interesting point that was made, unless you live with that level of pain, you're a theorist. If you live with that level of pain, you understand. Dr. Fiona Campbell is the president-elect of the Canadian Pain Society. She's an anesthesiologist in the Department of Anesthesia and Pain Medicine at SickKids Hospital in Toronto, an associate professor at the University of Toronto and co-director of the Pain Center at SickKids. Dr. Campbell, thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you very much for having me, Roy. The, the life of the patient who is living with chronic severe pain. It starts the moment the person wakes up, maybe it wakes the person up, and it's there all day long. The only thing the patient will say helps is the opioid pain meds. And now that patient has been hearing time and again that it's going to have to be reduced, the dosage will be reduced, doctors are increasingly unwilling to prescribe opioids, and that patient becomes very concerned. And among the things that I've read, uh, people saying, well, I'll, I'll become an alcoholic, I'll go to the streets and get whatever I need there, and worse. How does this all fit into your perspective as the incoming uh, president of the Can Canadian Pain Society, and you deal with kids with pain? Can you put it all together for us, please? Uh, now, that is a huge question to put it all together. But I know. I I'm like, sorry. <laughs> I would like to begin by saying I do agree with Dr. Yerlink that there are so many facets to this. Uh, I do acknowledge that the opioid crisis is real, um, but we really mustn't forget the impact that chronic pain has on people and their families. Uh, and currently, I would like to point out that currently many are terrified um, for fear of losing an effective treatment that allows them to hold jobs, have some comfort, and have some meaningful uh, improvements in their quality of life. 
So um, chronic pain is a complex disease, uh, and patients are often treated in a way that does not recognize this. And one thing that I think is very important to discuss to do is to distinguish between our chronic pain and acute pain. Acute pain is our natural warning system. It's our biological warning system, whereas chronic pain, on the other hand, is really a complex interplay between the brain and our malfunctioning nerve pathways that can occur and last long after normal tissue healing. So, for example, we know that 15% of patients after surgery, the same proportion after accidents, um, and and, uh, also associated with medical conditions, uh, can end up with chronic pain, and chronic pain can even occur without apparent injury. About 20% of the population have chronic pain, of whom 5% have significant disability with reduced quality of life. So, for example, I heard Chad's story um, uh, about his wife, and I can't imagine how difficult their lives uh, are and uh, will continue to be. Um, And there will be significant impact, uh, as with all chronic pain, on sleep, on mood, uh, with uh, increased rates of depression and suicide, um, ability to work. So a quarter of people with chronic pain lose jobs. They can't participate in their hobbies and sports. They often um, stop seeing their friends and they become socially isolated. And it's complicated by the fact that you've just mentioned that pain is invisible. It's also an ordinary, pain is also an ordinary part of life. So some don't take it, chronic pain, seriously and uh, are unsympathetic. And these are all things that uh, really contribute to the pain experience. So, 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 So emotions are very much part of the equation then. Oh, yes. I I mean, pain actually is defined in terms of both a a physical and an emotional um, phenomenon. I mean, when you think about the emotional impact of pain, it is very real. And we know that the pathways in the brain that are responsible for processing pain are very close to the area and sort of very integrated with the areas that process emotions. So as pain goes up, emotions can go up. And as emotions go up, um, anxiety, uh, you know, worry, depression, uh, frustration, as those things go up, it can also drive up pain. Which brings me to um, a point about treatment. Uh, a lot of the conversation, most, and it is the focus, the opioid crisis, I completely understand is the focus of uh, the conversation today. But the treatment of pain is not just about drugs. And even the bit that is about drugs is not just about opioids. So when you have a complicated disease, there isn't going to be a simple treatment and cure is unusual. So typically, current treatment in in the modern era among pain experts, current treatment focus is on rehabilitation. So ideally supervised by an interprofessional team of doctors, nurses, psychologists, speaking of mood, rehab therapists, such as physiotherapists and occupational therapists, who can uh, help with uh, treatments that improve function. And we know that by improving function, we can reduce pain. But for some people, um, those treatments aren't enough and they need some medical therapy in order to support the psychological treatments and the physical uh, treatments um, that are required. And so there are a variety of uh, medications that can be used for different pain conditions, of which opioids is but one. 
What? I, <laughs> I, I just something came to mind, and I should have thought of this earlier, but it's talked about quite regularly. And I've had aired programs where we, for example, we talked to the father of a three-year-old who had tremendous issues, great issues, problems with with seizures, and uh, and that little child was given marijuana extract oil, and the seizures disappeared. And we hear time and again about marijuana being a, a pain drug, an effective pain drug, or one option. Where does it, does it fit fit into the equation at all? Or? Yeah, um, well, that's a bit of a load. Or is it a question. sidebar? Is it a sidebar issue? Uh, it's not really a sidebar. I mean, I think when we're talking about medications for pain control, we really have to evaluate uh, benefit mm-hmm. and risk uh, and being um, compassionate uh, for the patients um, whom we serve. Um, marijuana, there are now what we call cannabinoid receptors within the body, just like there are opioid receptors within the body uh, that are involved in modulating pain. And so there may be, and there certainly are for some um, conditions, uh, a role for uh, the cannabinoids. Uh, pain is one of them, but we need to, again, balance risk and benefit. Uh, and seizure disorder is another one uh, where uh, seizures have been, um, uh, or marijuana cannabinoids have been shown to be effective for seizure disorders. And likewise, they will be helpful for some pain conditions. But uh, in parallel with the opioids, particularly in my um, group of patients, so the uh, children and teens, um, we need to be very mindful about the impact on medications on right. the uh, developing brain. What I'm, what I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. What, what I'm hearing from what I'm hearing from Professor Yerling and what I hear, I'm hearing from you is that, uh, and particularly hearing from you, is that each situation, each patient, is a very individual concern. There is, there's no one size fits all. That being said, what do you say to the patient who's listening right now? Who hears you and, and and is attentively listening to every word you're saying, but tuning out whenever the suggestion may become um, even marginally mentally visible, if I can use that metaphor, tunes out the moment med- opioids are not part of the picture. I don't hear opioids. Yeah. I can't hear you anymore. Okay. So, um, and I know that this is a very real problem. So to cut to the... Um, Chase, uh, we know that uh, we have this sort of catch-22, right, where the opioid debate is engendering really strong emotion for both sides. So um, uh, access to opioids versus limiting access to opioids. And I do, we do know already uh, that there are disturbing trends emerging uh, in terms of limiting access. So for those patients who are listening that you just mentioned, um, we know that some physicians are refusing to prescribe opioids at all for fear of reprisal from professional bodies. Um, So we also uh, are hearing of suicides by pain patients for whom opioids have been um, uh, cut off. 
Uh, and we know that patients are suffering from acute opioid withdrawal presenting to emergency departments. And we know that some patients who require opioids for pain or for whom they have been perceived to be helpful for their pain are seeking illicit opioids to treat their pain. So um, we know that there are vulnerable people living with chronic pain for whom opioids uh, do reduce their pain and importantly improve function and quality of life. And uh, I feel most passionately that they must not be marginalized. Um, and uh, what what I do know is that there are efforts underway uh, to um, uh, improve uh, treatments for chronic pain and uh, develop some strategies to imp- uh, reduce the likelihood of people getting chronic pain and, and then strategies to address chronic pain. Um, there are new opioid guidelines coming, and I know that Professor Yurik spoke a lot about uh, the doses and the dose limits and so on. Um, there are many working. There are many people working to advocate uh, that uh, patients who need them, who are functioning despite their pain, um, on doses of opioids, uh, that uh, there's going to be a compassionate approach. And we know that Minister Philpot has spoken uh, to the fact that we need a compassionate approach to uh, treating pain. So the Ministry of uh, the Ontario Ministry of Health, for example, uh, is developing a standard for um, uh, how to prescribe opioids for pain uh, that we hope to certainly have in some compassionate recommendations uh, for patients for whom that they are enabling them to uh, have significant improvements in, in their quality of life. All right. So we, I mean, there are a couple of other things that are, uh, that are needed. I think opioids uh, certainly are. Do you, mind, do you mind if I take a quick break and then we'll come back of and talk course. some more? Okay. Yeah. All right. I need yeah. to do that. I need to take a quick break and we'll yeah. come back and we'll talk some more with Dr. Fiona Campbell. But when this first time I've heard pain described as a disease, and I find that probably that should have been done a long time ago. But when Dr. Campbell says pain leads to social isolation, which leads to depression, which can lead to suicide, somewhere along that path, someone who's responsible for determining the levels of opioid medicines that are made available to pain patients, someone has to say, hold on a second, pain, social isolation, depression, suicide. We can't allow a human being to go down that trail. We'll come back. Direct, hard-hitting, no-holds-barred. The Rory Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. It's having a little difficulty with uh, Dr. Campbell's phone. We are calling her back, and if we just do it really slowly, maybe we can make it work. I want to tell you that in our next hour as well, we're going to be talking more about the issue of uh, health care. You know, last Sunday, we spoke to Charlotte, the mom of 29-year-old Jesse, who had a blood test done on uh, the Friday before Christmas, and the results came out on the Friday, and the results were that uh, Jesse 
should, in fact, go to a hospital. Are we calling Dr. Campbell? That, uh, that Jesse should present to an emergency room. And those results did not, weren't transmitted to the family until Monday. And on Sunday night, Jesse had a heart attack. And you heard uh, Charlotte tell us that her daughter passed away two days later. So by the time the family had the results, by the time the family had the results of the blood test, Jesse had already had a massive heart attack and she died. In 2014, 2015, 138,000 Canadian hospital patients suffered from harm. 5.6% of all patients, that's excluding the province of Quebec. One in eight resulted in death. We'll talk to Kathleen Finley, the CEO and the founder of the Center for Patient Protection. Dr. Fiona Campbell is back with us on the Roy Green Show on the Corridor Radio Network. Dr. Campbell, is that better? Can you hear me better? Yes, it's uh, uh, perfectly clear now. Thank Good. You. So I forget where we were. I, I, I think, um, I, I believe we were going to move on to what's needed to really improve, improve uh, pain treatments for uh, those with chronic pain. Okay, so the person who stops hearing you when they feel that the word opioid has been removed from their treatment regimen they don't hear you anymore now it's fear and panic that sets in so what are they what where do you think we're headed well uh, and unless we can uh, intervene earlier to improve the way that we assess and treat pain, then those patients are going to, um, they, they, if they feel that they're on their own, they don't have the treatments that they perceive to have been helpful uh, for a long period of time, they maybe uh, go down some of those routes that I just mentioned before uh, in terms of um, uh, choosing not to live, um, seeking illicit opioids, um, getting more depressed, uh, going into acute uh, opioid withdrawal because they're no longer getting their opioids. So I think that we're really um, uh, moving into an area that is uh, incredibly in inhumane for patients who are already on opioids. So as I mentioned before, I think uh, whatever resolution we have to recommendations for prescribing must uh, include compassion and options. Uh, I'm not accusing anyone of anything, but sometimes politicians and the world of politics, they make decisions based on what appears to be best for the world of politics. And I just hope that when the decision is made after appropriate research and speaking to you, Dr. Campbell, also speaking to patients, I understand that patients were originally excluded from a conference on pain, which to me sounds ridiculous and dangerous. But I hope the decision is made based on, on appropriate information and on that, that terrifying pathway that you describe, pain, social isolation, depression, suicide. Yes, um, I, I hope, I'm cautiously optimistic that uh, all the important players, including most importantly patients, healthcare providers, law uh, makers, policy makers, are all going to work together to um, come to a solution that improves 
um, the lives of patients with uh, pain, but also uh, leads to reductions in harm. And uh, we don't know exactly what that is going to look like, but I do believe we need improved pain care that is not just about the drugs, but that drugs is a, uh, an integral part of that. Right. We need better pain education. Vets get five times more pain training than medical students do. And at this point, I'm sorry, I have to jump in, and it's not my fault. It's the clock's fault. We've come to the end of the hour. But I hope you'll come back on the program. I'd like to talk about this again. Okay. Thank you so much for having me. And um, uh, really, my heart goes out to patients who uh, live with chronic pain. You sound like a great doc. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Dr. Fiona Campbell.